0: Hey Bridgetown, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our teaching series through Matthew's Gospel. We left off last week in verse 9. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Read with me. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish." Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Why are you here? By here, I don't mean in the basement of our new building or in your living room watching online. I mean, why are you a part of Bridgetown Church? Or if you're watching from around the world, why are you a part of any church for that matter? You made an effort to get up on a Sunday morning and give your time and your attention to Jesus to sit under the teaching of the scriptures and to worship and kind of orient or reorient your mind and body around Jesus. um, That's great, you made a decision to do that instead of go out for coffee with your friend group or drive over to the beach for the day. Why? Why are you a part of our community? Now, there's not a right answer to that question per se, but there is a wrong one. Eugene Peterson, the pastor and writer that I look up to, who said his life's work was to, quote, nurture an anti-consumer congregation. That is so punk rock. In his book, Run with the Horses, which I'm rereading right now, he said it this way. Some people come to church looking for a way to make life better and to feel good about themselves, to see things in a better light. They arrange a ritual and hire a preacher to make that happen for them. Other people come to church because they want God to save and rule them. They accept the fact that there are temptations and sufferings and sacrifices involved in leaving a way of life in which they are in control and plunging into an uncertain existence in which God is in control. One group of people sees religion as a way to successful, happy living. The other group sees religion as a way in which hurt, flawed, and damaged persons become whole in relation to God. One way is the way of enhancing what I want. The other way is a commitment of myself to become what God wants. Now life is far more complex than a simple binary between two groups of people, those who want to do God's will and those who want to do their own will. But as a rhetorical device, it's a much-needed kind of prod at the heart because the tug-of-war of desire to, you know, on one hand do God's will and on the other hand do our own will, that is inside, deep inside every single human heart. And as a result, it is inside every single church. But here's the thing. Jesus assumes that if you become his apprentice, your driving motivation is to do the father's will. That's it. Like that's the baseline of your heart. After all, another way to translate Jesus' phrase, the kingdom of God is the rule of God. To live in the kingdom of heaven is to live under the rule of heaven. It's to follow Jesus' example, who all through his life said, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. Or in another place, he said, I always do what pleases the Father. At the very end of his life, he said, not my will, but yours be done. For Jesus, the entirety of the spiritual journey is about moving off of the egoic grasping for control. That is the root of our problem. It is where all of our anxiety comes from, all of our anger that tear our soul and our society apart. It's all based in our attachments in the language of psychology or our idolatry in the language of Christian tradition. For Jesus, the spiritual journey is about freedom from our attachments or our idols through greater and greater levels of surrender to the Father's love And wisdom through a deep confidence in Jesus and a release of the illusion of control. But to go on the spiritual journey with Jesus, we need a guide, that's Jesus. We need a road or a way to follow, which for us is the way of Jesus as it comes to us through the writings of the New Testament. But that's not enough. We also need a community to journey with, what we call the church, and we need grace or like an inner energy source for the journey itself, for the long obedience in the same direction from the Spirit of God. So we come to the church to get help from other followers of Jesus for the journey and to get grace for every day. The end goal of the spiritual journey for you, for me, for the individual soul, and for the church as a whole is to become the place where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But here's the thing. That is not the driving motivation behind church for a lot of us, myself included. We all know that motivation is at best a mixed bag. And when other motivations come up to the surface of our heart, all sorts of problems and issues wreak havoc in the church. Enter Matthew 18. If you missed last week, Matthew 18 is one unit of thought, but it was too much to cover in one teaching, so today is part two of three. The entire chapter is about life in the community of Jesus' apprentices, also known as the church, and more specifically about how to deal with sin in the church and not let it sabotage Jesus' vision for a Sermon on the Mount kind of community. If only being a community of followers of Jesus made us immune or impervious to sin, personal conflict, and hurt feelings. If only. It's not that way. We left off with Jesus teaching on the little ones, if you were here last week. And remember, the little ones at first are children in the story. That is Jesus' example of kind of a low status that you self-adopt but then become a moniker for any and all who are weak or vulnerable in the church, or somebody who's new to Jesus or is under hurt or something from a past experience. And then you have Jesus' stark warning to false teachers and or the strong who take advantage of the weak and cause them to stumble into sin or fall even away from the faith. Let's pick it up in verse 10 and work through the text. Verse 10. See to it that you do not despise, or that can be translated kind of look down on, one of these little ones. Again, either a child or somebody who's new to Jesus or who is vulnerable. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. This is where people get the idea of a guardian angel from, which is an ancient idea. It predates Jesus himself. It's not just a modern Western thing. As nice as the idea is, Jesus does not say that every person has a guardian angel. If they do, they are not great at their job. I'm not sure. Jesus' point is, if you hurt one of these little ones, it will come to the attention of the Father Himself. Heaven, in a sense, is watching how you and I love or do not love one another. Next line, 12. What do you think? I love Jesus just straight to the point. If a man owns a hundred sheep, and one of them wanders away, 100 was the average size of a flock in his world, will he not leave the 99 on the hills, most likely with another shepherd, and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Here we have a parable. The shepherd in the parable is God himself as personified by Jesus who earlier in Matthew said he was, quote, sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He already said that. The lost sheep in the parable is a follower of Jesus who has gone astray, either due to a false teacher or spiritual abuse of some kind, or as we see in the next section, just plain old sin. And the 99 are the church. Now, the idea of God as a shepherd is not a new idea in Jesus' first century world. God as a shepherd is a running theme all the way through the library of Scripture. Think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd shepherd, I lack nothing. What's new in Jesus' parable is the idea that God, the shepherd, goes after the one. You follow that metaphor to its logical conclusion. That God doesn't just deal with the majority, that you're not a number to God in a data set, that one lost sheep isn't just cost of doing business, that you are, in the language of the Hebrew poetry, fearfully and wonderfully made by God Himself, that all the days ordained for you were written in His book before one of them came to be." And God has a deep emotional connection to you and to me. And when we wander off, or we're vulnerable or at risk to sin, God doesn't just shrug, well, you know, sheep will be sheep, that's John Mark for you, that's whoever for you, but instead he goes after you or me. Now, why does Jesus tell a parable about what God is like in the middle of a teaching on what the church is to be like? Because we become like our vision of God, for better or for worse. God, in Jesus' vision, is a shepherd who goes after the one. Ergo, we are to follow his example and go after each other. Which is why, in verse 15, there's a shift from a parable about God to a practice for the church. Verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just just the two of you, just between you. If they listen to you, You've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, you ready for this? How did I end up with this text? It's beautiful, really. Two things to note right off the bat from verse 15. One, if your brother or sister... Meaning, this practice is not a practice for those outside of the church, but inside. This is not something we are, just to make it crystal clear, not something we are to do on Instagram or to a politician or a coworker or a neighbor. As Paul later said to the Corinthians in his teaching on Matthew 18, who are we to judge outsiders, end quote, people outside the church. Second, it's if your brother or sister sins. Note that language. Meaning this is not a practice for personal conflict in your relational life or hurt feelings or a beef that you have with so-and-so on a sociopolitical issue. There is a footnote in your Bible, at least if you have the NIV or the ESV, that if you read has, quote, some manuscripts have sins against you which would make Jesus' teaching here a little bit more about personal conflict. And for sure, there's good advice in here for personal conflict. Talk to people, get it all out on the table, in a kind of heart posture of love, don't gloss it over, have the hard kind of thing. But the vast majority of scholars argue that against you was not in Jesus' original teaching. And even if it was, the case study in view is one-sided. There is one person in sin, not two. Now, there are four steps to the practice. Number one, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Go, like the shepherd, like God himself, go after the lost sheep and point out their fault. The verb is one word in Greek, it's elekko, and it's a very... A motive word, it can be translated rebuke or expose or correct or confront. Go to the person and expose or rebuke or confront head on where they are in sin. Hey, are you sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Hey, was that a lie? Hey, was that dishonest at your work? Hey, what? It doesn't have to be accusatory. But, man, you go and you actually point out where what they are saying or how they are living is out of alignment with the way of Jesus. But you do it, quote, just between the two of you. This is very important. Meaning, one, do not shame them in public. This needs to be said in our cultural moment of call-out culture, and online shaming and virtue signaling and what Willard called condemnation engineering, Jesus is very clear do not do that. Jesus put it in very emphatic language, with the measure, do not judge or you too will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Meaning, judgers are judged. Hypercritical people that go after and attack other people end up criticized and attacked by other people. That's just the law of the jungle and it's not the way of Jesus. Not only is it cruel, it will likely blow up in your face, and even if not, even if you get away with it, it does not work. If your goal is long-term change, much less if it's healing of a wound, that it does not work. As a general rule, people's survival instincts all kick in, and it's flight, or even worse, it's fight. So Jesus is saying, listen, do it in private, not in public. Don't shame them or call them out. Go. You have a better chance if it's in a spirit of love and it's just the two of you. Secondly, meaning do not gossip about them behind their back. Talk to them, not about them. Gossip is like a poison in the bloodstream of the church. I grew up in church. I've been around it my entire life. Gossip is a killer. It's lethal. Instead, go direct to the source Jesus goes on, if they listen to you, you've won them over. You often come, some of you know this from experience, out the other side of kind of a confrontation like that with a deeper, stronger relationship than you ever had before. And they have been won back. Notice the military kind of language here from the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But sadly, often, all too often, people do not listen to you, especially in our hyper-individualistic and anti-authoritarian city and kind of culture at large where a lot of people get really mad really fast if you dare call any behavior sin, even if your heart is and your posture is kind of the Jesus posture of humility, the child, love, the heart of God, all of that. Hence step two. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter, quote, may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, the point here, just to be clear, is not to gang up on somebody and, like, call in the heavies, right, or your posse. Verse 16 is a quote from Deuteronomy 19. In the original context, it was for a court of law. You were not to convict somebody without a minimum of two to three witnesses to guard against defamation or a personal vendetta or a bribe or injustice or whatever. Hence, the goal here is very similar. One, it's just to make sure that your objective, especially as your emotions ratchet up in kind of relationship and um, it's easy to personalize the other person's sin. And two, for the person in sin to realize, oh, wow, this isn't just so-and-so's opinion or this isn't just a preference like I'm, oh, wow. They are all saying, I'm in sin. So step two is to take a few more people along with you and do the same thing. Just go in private, in a spirit of love, point out their fault. But 17, if they still refuse to listen, so now it's clear, all right, their heart is obstinate. They, they do not have a soft heart to God's will. Step three is tell it to the church they need to realize that their participation in the community of Jesus is at stake. This is kind of, a, again, in love, but a final warning. Now, what, is exactly, what exactly does Jesus mean by the church here? Tell it to the church. What exactly is that? And how do we apply that in the late modern kind of world we call home? Do we stand up every Sunday with like a Facebook photo of a name of, you know, every person in sin at Bridgetown Church or whatever? Some churches do that. Um, most people experience that as, as very brutal and cruel. Most of the time at Bridgetown, the way we do this is through our Bridgetown communities. We have the kind of community as a whole, if it comes to that, confront the person so they can see just how much is at stake. However, we apply step three, and it's a gray area. It must be done in the spirit of steps one and two. How we do it Is Just as if not more important than you know what we do where we have to do it where it's not about power If you know anything about intervention theory and psychology like with addiction power dynamics is a disaster waiting to happen It can't be about power It has to be about love where our intent is not to Ostracize or to shame but for the person to open up their heart to God But finally if they refuse to listen even to the church step four treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The ESV has let them be to you as a pagan or a tax collector. The verb in Greek is passive, meaning it's not something you do to them as much as it's something they do to you. Jesus' idea here is, listen, at this point in time, it's out of your control. You have done your part. Now your part is to respect their decision as a human being with free will and dignity and to honor them and to let them go. But from then on, treat them as you would a quote, pagan or a tax collector. Now, wow, okay, what, what is Jesus saying here? Well, on one hand, He likely means that we are to exclude them from the life of the community, at least at the inner kind of life of a community. Because whatever title they claim, they might say, oh, I'm a Christian or I'm a whatever. They are like a pagan and a tax collector, just meaning they are in, at some level, open rebellion against God and His will, no matter what title they claim. This may make us feel um, very uncomfortable, the idea of kicking somebody out of a community, but all communities do this. The most progressive, inclusive, tolerant communities do this all the time. You have to in order to preserve the integrity of a community that has any kind of a moral bar. This isn't a right-wing thing or a left-wing thing or a religious thing, it's a human thing. On the other hand, Jesus is likely saying, reach out to them and invite them to follow me like you would anyone far from God. Think about Jesus' relationship to pagans and tax collectors. Matthew, the author of the gospel that we're in right now, was a former tax collector. We read his story early on. What did Jesus do? Shun him? Shame him? Call him out? No, he had him over had himself over for dinner, come to my table. And he said, come and follow me. Jesus' heart is one of love and open welcome toward all. But, but, there is still a very clear line of demarcation between those inside and outside his community, between a pagan and a tax collector and an apprentice of Jesus. Jesus' point is, by step four, it's clear that you're not dealing with a fellow apprentice of Jesus, no matter what title they claim. Actions speak louder than words. So we are to treat them as somebody who is not. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase does a great job of capturing the heart behind the text here. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest And try again. If he still won't listen to the church, if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start from scratch, confront him with the need of repentance, and offer again God's forgiving love. Great job of kind of capturing the heart behind the text. Jesus goes on, just about done, to make two clarifying statements. 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, there's a shift here in language that's lost in translation from Greek to English. In verse 15, the "you" is singular, meaning the practice that we just read about is not so much for the church as a whole or the kind of elder team of the church or whatever, it's for you. And it's for me, as a follower of Jesus, to do on each other. All followers of Jesus, not just the elders of a church, have a responsibility to go after each other. But in verse 18, the you goes back to plural, which is more normal for Jesus. Now it's all about the church as a whole. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Meaning, we function as the locus point of authority of heaven on earth. We covered the language of binding and loosing back in chapter 16, if you were here, felt like forever ago. It was used by the rabbis in Jesus' day to convict or acquit someone in a Jewish court of law. Jesus is saying, when you as the church call a behavior sin, that's not right. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not so much that you wield the like spiritual power of heaven behind you at all. It's more that it will have already been ratified, so to speak, in heaven's court. Because again, the church is the place where God's will is done on earth as in heaven. It is the repository. It's the best way to think about authority. It is the repository of the cumulative wisdom from the mind of God through the writings of the scriptures and the way of Jesus over thousands of years. Clarification one: When you confront sin, you have, at a sense, God with you. Clarification two, verse 19. Again, truly I tell you. Remember, that's like Jesus' little idiom. I'm he's driving the point home that if two of you on earth agree about anything, they ask for. Now, remember, in context, this is not prosperity gospel. He's not saying together, you know, agree for the new Land Rover or whatever. He's saying, we're, in context, he's 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 teaching on dealing with sin in the community, right, and the healing of somebody who's lost. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with him. Okay, this is subversive to the core, and again, lost in translation. There was a well-known rabbinic saying from right around the time of Jesus that was, quote, if two sit together and the words of the Torah are between them, the divine presence rests between them. This is the age of the synagogue, right? If you sit down for a a Torah study or a Bible study with your best mate or whatever, the divine presence that was in the temple, in a sense, it's with you. Here, Jesus is saying, I am the divine presence. I am God with you, and I'm with you, not just when you sit down for a, a Torah study or a Bible study, as great as that is, I'm with you in the mess of community. When you sin against each other, when you are hurt, when there's ache, when there's when there's misunderstanding, when there's abuse, and so, I'm with you in the mess. Jesus is not an idealist. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous line from Life Together where he defined community in the way of Jesus as a community of apprentices under the word, meaning under the scripture, but more than that, under God's will. He said, quote, he who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. He who loves the idea, the idealized kind of vision and dream of church more than the church he or she is a part of becomes the destroyer of the latter. Jesus' vision of church is not utopian. There's a lot of that in the world right now. Jesus' vision of life together with people who still have sin in their DNA is grounded in reality. He is fierce in his like pro-church heart, but he is anti-idealism because where there is idealism, there isn't love. This is the cause where um, one teaching away from what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce. This is, and it's all, remember, it's all one flow of thought. This is the cause, this behinds the culprit behind so much um, divorce or just breakdown at a relational level in marriage. Because often we don't marry a man or a woman, we marry an idea. Or an ideal. We fall in love with, you know, in Jungian psychology, he would say, the feminine archetype or the masculine archetype. And it's just all well and good, but there's a lot of narcissism in that. And then a few months into our marriage or a few years into our marriage, we wake up one morning and we look over and the hair is all crazy and we realize, oh wow, she's wonderful, but she's not the feminine archetype. She's not, she's her. And she looks at you and says, oh wow, you're not the masculine archetype, you're John Mark, and wow, okay. And then at that point, you have an opportunity to move from narcissism to love, to agape, where we take people and we love people as they actually are, as they actually come to us. And this is a lifelong journey. My wife and I are nearing 20 years together and every day it's another step forward to love, not the idea of marriage or the idea of family or the idea of romance or sexuality or whatever, or a soulmate, but the reality of my wife who's fearfully, wonderfully made, of my children, of the people I'm in community with, of view of our church, which has all sorts of problems and issues. You think I'm not aware of it? I'm very aware of it. To love people as they are, to let God love us as we are, to love the church as it is, not necessarily as it should be. Now, this teaching of Jesus is one of his most used and abused. All sorts of damage. Let's just be honest for a moment well, not for a moment, for the whole time, but all sorts of damage has been done When people have turned it into a formula for, quote, church discipline, and it's not even great language, and often done the right thing, but the wrong way, or in the wrong spirit, in a spirit of moral superiority, or kind of shaming, or some kind of a personal grievance, or kind of a a church politics thing, ah, it's ugly. People have been left devastated by Matthew 18 done bad, but... I would argue even more people have been hurt and left with a wound by Matthew 18, not done at all. By being left to stumble, to fall into sin, or even away from the faith with nothing but a polite wave, goodbye, or a text, love you. If on one side of the spectrum you have cruelty, and we hear horror story after horror story, right, of just Matthew 18 gone bad, On the other side, you have compromise, where people compromise on sin in a community because they do not want to rock the boat or upset the touchy person or deal with their own sin. Because to confront somebody else's sin, you have to confront your own first, right? Take the plank out of your own eye, as Jesus said it. So we let it slide. And in doing so, we lower the standard of Jesus' vision of church. And as a result, both the soul in question and the community as a whole suffer the pain and hurt and damage and wound of sin. Sin does not lead to human flourishing, nor can it ever. That is why confrontation is the most loving thing to do, and compromise is just as unloving as cruelty is. Our elders right now are rereading Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman, to gear up for the fall and the election cycle in our city. I consider it the most important book on leadership I've ever read. In it, Friedman, who was an early expert in family systems theory, writes about a strange dynamic in groups, whether that group is a family or a church. He was the Jewish rabbi at first or a synagogue or all the way up to a nation state. A strange dynamic in a community or a social group, in particular if it's unhealthy or if it's dysfunctional, where the group will devolve To the lowest level of maturity. Rather than rise to meet the caliber of its most mature, most whole members, who are often much older, it will stoop to the level of its least mature, most kind of dysfunctional members. This happens in any system, from like a family with three or four people, or your larger kind of extended family, to a church for sure, and even beyond. When we compromise and we just kind of turn a blind eye to Jesus' practice in Matthew 18 and we let sin slide, the entire community goes down. This is hard for our hyper-individualistic kind of Western mindset. The entire community goes down how do we, this is a question I ask on a regular basis as a pastor at our church, how do we at Bridgetown not become that kind of an unhealthy family system where we devolve to the lowest common denominator, but instead, in the language of the New Testament, spur one another on to love and good deeds? I think of AA or a CrossFit gym or a karate studio where there's a different social dynamic a place where you come together and you spur one another on to what is next, even in a spirit of love and humor and grace. How do we do that? Well, the short answer is the practice of Matthew 18. To end, for those of you who, as I'm teaching, know of someone in your relational circle who is in sin, the call for you this week is to go and have a talk. Now, just to make it crystal clear, it is not to use my teaching or Jesus' teaching as an excuse to call up all the people you have a beef with and tell them off or post some nasty thing online. That is not, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But to go after people who are at risk, to take on Jesus' shepherd heart of love and call people back, so to speak, to the flock. Why don't you take a moment, even right now, and just think about, just open your mind and imagination to the Spirit of God. Does anyone come to mind that Jesus would nudge you to go after? Not go after, but just go talk to. Maybe it's someone in blatant, like open rebellion against God. Maybe, or most likely not. Maybe it's just somebody that you have a little concern over. And maybe you don't go and, you know, rebuke them per se. Maybe it's just to begin, just, hey, tell me how you are. How are you feeling with Jesus right now? Just, is there anyone that right now the Holy Spirit would bring to mind? You do with that what Jesus would have you do. And then, to those of you who, as I'm teaching, wonder or you know that you are. The person in sin. Maybe someone in your community has come to you about it. Maybe not. But again, in ancient language, the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil are dragging away so many right now. I just, I just have a pastoral heavy spirit in the last month or two or four or five. I've not seen this level of kind of spiritual pain in a very long time. The last few months have brought so many followers of Jesus who, before COVID and everything, were kind of, I think, teetering on the fence or kind of on the fringe of, like, are you an apprentice of Jesus or not? And there's so much safe place at our church for you, um, if you're not even a theist yet, to just, you are welcome. We're so happy that you are with us. i very welcome here. But so many people that were kind of teetering on the fence have just either gone in or gone the other direction. So many people right now in our city are being dragged away by the false promises of ideology on both the left and the right, by deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in our sinful society. Don't let the enemy take you away. Don't let the enemy trip you up and cause you to stumble, whether the enemy is out there or in here. The call for you this week from Jesus is in his language to listen, to listen to your brothers and sisters in the family of God, to not harden your heart against God's voice, to not numb your conscience, to not turn a blind eye to Jesus' teaching in scripture, but to listen. And you are, if you've made it this far into the teaching, you are well done. Remember a few weeks ago in that teaching on the transfiguration, We said the basic posture of an apprentice of Jesus is listening. And we said that to listen in the language, the Greek word that Jesus used here and earlier and the Hebrew word behind it, shema, does not just mean to hear. It means to obey. To hear and obey is the heart posture. It's the default setting of an apprentice of Jesus. So to circle back, why are we here? Why are we a part of a church? Why are we together? Whatever together means in the crazy era we're living in right now. Why are we in the family of God? To do the will of the Father. To say along with our older brother Jesus, not my will, but your will be done because we surrender to God's love and wisdom to spur one another on to greater and greater levels of surrender and with it freedom into love and into life. And in doing so to discover like Jesus that on the other side of death is life with God.